Welcome to the Mom Enomics Podcast. I am your host, Booth Parker, mom, wife, and certified public accountant. I am passionate about all things family, home, and finance. This week on the podcast, I am continuing in my series, Paying for College. If you missed the last two weeks' episodes, be sure to go take a listen to parts one and two of this series. Now for part three. We have all heard about the serious problem of student loan debt. After all, there is currently $1.75 trillion of outstanding student loan debt with an average of just under $29,000 per borrower. More than half of students leave college with student loan debt. That debt often takes a decade or more to repay, putting a strain on the monthly budget of young adults, as well as starting them off behind on their long-term financial goals and retirement saving. When I taught my first personal finance class back in 2021, I had a class of high school seniors, great group of kids. Many were planning on using student loans to pay for college. After all, they really have become completely normalized in our society because the ever-increasing cost of college is out of reach for many families to afford. Almost all of my seniors in that class that were planning on using student loans either found another way to pay for college, such as starting at a community college to knock out core classes and then transferring to the four-year school, or they just greatly reduced the amount of student let student debt they were going to take on. So these are kind of little examples I like to give students and stuff to get their attention sometimes. Um, If you use that national average amount that I just mentioned, the almost $29,000, and you use the 5% interest rate, which is about a current interest rate on student loans, and the standard 10-year repayment plan, The monthly payment would be right at $300 for those 10 years to pay that student loan off. However, if you were able to graduate without student loan debt, say you're 22 years old when you graduate, and you were able to immediately begin investing $300 a month, we're going to assume a 7.5% annual return that's well below the stock market 10-year average. If you were doing that $300 a month starting at age 22, then when you got to age 32, you would have right at $53,000. If you left that $53,000 invested, didn't invest any more towards it, no more $300 a month, just left that $53,000 alone still invested at the 7.5%, by age 62, it would grow to about $465,000. So you would have contributed $36,000 over the 10 years for it to grow to $465,000 by age 62. On the flip side though, if you have to pay off a student loan for 10 years and you can't save and invest until say age 32, then when you start investing that $300 a month at age 32, it would take you until almost age 64 to grow that to $465,000. The kicker here is though, 
you would be making that $300 a month investment for those 30 plus years. So your total contribution would end up being a little over 115,000 rather than just $36,000 to end up with 465,000 at an early retirement age. So when I give these students um, these kind of numbers and how drastically student loan debt can impair the achievement of their long-term financial goals, it really motivates them to want to eliminate or minimize student debt. So I'm not saying everyone can rule out a student loan. Most can, um, but it, this really motivates when you see the difference in where you'll be long-term. Few students and even their families truly understand what they are signing up for when they take out a student loan. So we could talk for hours about student loans, whether or not the forgiveness is okay, all of that type of stuff. But today I'm gonna to focus on the, um, an overview of the different types of student loans and their repayment plans. So if you're going that route, you have a basic understanding of where you need to start. As you may recall from the first two episodes in this series, we talked about the FABSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And remember, you want to get this completed as soon as it opens up for the following school year that you are applying for. The FABSA will give you your EFC number, your expected family contribution. Don't forget that term is changing to the Student Aid Index for the 24-25 school year and forward. <clears throat> in talking to some parents recently, their EFC turned out to be much higher than they had anticipated it would be. And that is when it is good to have that 529 plan like we talked about last week or some other kind of savings plan um, to have that money set aside for college. When your child applies to college, the school has that published cost of attendance, the sticker price, and then the net price will be the price after financial aid is applied. We generally think of financial aid as aid that does not need to be repaid, like a grant, but some student loans <clears throat> are actually classified as financial aid. The FAFSA helps determine the amount of aid a student is eligible to receive based on their financial need. Oftentimes, there is that gap, remember the gapping term, term, between the net price and that EFC where additional funds are needed. Plus, with those EFCs often being higher than people expect, families don't have enough funds to cover the EFC. And this is where student loans come in. There are both federal and private student loans. Federal loans make up about 92% of the total student loans they're generally more favorable towards the borrower. Private student loans are generally thought about as almost a last resort once the federal loans have been exhausted. Let's take a look at the federal loans first. So the most favorable type is the direct subsidized. This type is based on financial need. The school will tell you if you are eligible and how much you are eligible for. The beauty of this type is that the government covers the interest while you are in school, you have to be there at least part-time, taking a half load, during the grace period, which is six months after you graduate, and during any deferment periods. 
So that is the great thing about the subsidized is that interest is covered. Next, you have the direct unsubsidized. So this type is not based on financial need. It will usually have a slightly higher interest rate than the subsidized, and there are also loan limits. The big thing here is that the borrower is responsible for the interest that accrues while you're in school during the grace period, deferments, et cetera. So that's the big difference there. The subsidized the interest is covered by the government. Un unsubsidized, the borrower is responsible for that interest. Both the direct subsidized and subsidized have a fixed interest rate and they do not require a credit check. And the repayment plans generally begin about six months after graduation. Next up is the direct plus loan. This is where the parent plus loan comes in. I'm sure you've heard that term before, so we're going to talk about it. So the parent plus loan is taken out by the parents of undergraduate students. It is intended to fill the gap between that cost of attendance and any direct subsidized or unsubsidized loans or financial aid received. So the limit available is the cost of attendance minus other financial aid or loans received. These generally have a higher interest rate and the payments start immediately upon disbursement unless you apply for deferment. However, if you do the deferment route, the interest still accrues during the deferment. These loans are not eligible for income-driven repayments unless you consolidate them, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And the parent is the responsible party for the loan repayment. So next you have what's called the direct consolidation loan. This is when you combine all the eligible federal loans down into one. So having one payment to manage may be a great way to simplify. It also usually creates a lower payment, monthly payment, but increases the length of time to repay, which is thus increasing the overall interest paid. This consolidation is usually done after you have left school. The interest rate you pay will be based upon a weighted average of those consolidated loans. And this loan is eligible for income-driven repayment. However, Depending on the type of loans you are consolidating, you want to make sure you won't lose credits for any payments that you have already been made on the pre-existing loan. So that's a big thing to make sure you're not losing if you do the consolidation. Private student loans are a consideration when all federal loan options have been exhausted. They're generally less flexible. They generally have higher interest rates. That can also be variable. They can be fixed or variable. They do require a credit check, meaning most students will need a cosigner in order to obtain one. They can cover any costs and limits are dependent on the lender and the actual loan, but you do want to make sure that the lender works with your intended school. And there are also private refinancing options that may allow you to get a lower rate if your credit has improved during the time you've had the loan outstanding. So current interest rates, as of today, they're averaging about 5% for the federal direct loans, those subsidized and unsubsidized, 7.5% for that parent plus loan, 
and a range of 5.6 to 13.8 for private loans. So you can see how those private loans could get quite expensive. What about the repayment of the loans? So for the federal direct loans, both subsidized and subsidized, repayment starts six months after you graduate or you have gone less than that half-time amount. For the unsubsidized, the interest is still accruing during that six-month period before the repayment starts. And as mentioned above, the Parent PLUS loan, those payments start at disbursement of the loan unless you have gotten that deferment until the after-graduation date. But remember, that interest is still accruing. So the standard federal plan is 10 years of repayment with the same monthly payment for 10 years. So this plan is basically the, the default, the automatic one that pops in unless you make arrangements for another plan. The graduated plan is that same 10-year time frame, but the payments start small and increase over the 10 years. And then the extended plan allows for up to 25 years for repayment with either the fixed or the graduated monthly payment. And then the federal direct consolidation plan is for the repayment of that direct consolidated loan and allows up to 30 years to repay. Federal loans, except for the, the PLUS loan, are eligible for income-driven repayment. Remember, you can do the direct consolidation loan and consolidate your parent PLUS loan into that and make it eligible for income-driven repayment. Income-driven repayment plan is usually 10% of your discretionary income over a term of 20 years. There are also 15% and 25-year options and a 20% of discretionary income for 25 years. Discretionary income in this context is calculated as the difference between your annual income and 150% of the poverty guideline for your state of residence and family size. So payments under this plan may not fully cover the interest. So that unpaid interest is added to the principal balance of the loan, thus increasing the principal balance each month that the payment isn't fully covering the interest. And then private repayment plans, they vary by the lender and the terms of the specific loan. So some have the payments start when the loan is dispersed and some have interest only payments while you're in school. The average private, private student loan has a repayment term of seven to 15 years, but they can be anywhere from five to 20. So the private repayment plan really depends on the lender and the loan chosen. All in all, if you need student loans, you generally want to exhaust your federal loan options before choosing a private student loan. You want to take out as little as absolutely possible in total and repay it on the shortest term you can afford. It is easy to see how people have an extremely hard time obtaining their long-term financial goals when they are spending up to 25 years repaying student loans rather than being able to save and invest their money. The long-term considerations 
of student loan debt needs to be thoroughly evaluated before taking it on. Options to make the degree less expensive, such as community college, then transfer to a four-year school, working while in school, and work-study programs all should be considered. That dream school may financially kill your long-term wealth dreams, so always keep your options open. A good rule of thumb is not to graduate with more student loan debt than what your starting salary will most likely be. Bottom line, college is expensive. Do your research before you commit to a school or any loan. And remember, colleges have that net price estimator on their websites. Don't forget to get that FAFSA filled out as soon as you're eligible to. The future is wide open. Don't narrow it with overwhelming student loan debt. Thanks for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this series on paying for college. In the show notes, I have linked the blog post uh, to this podcast. So it has some of those numbers detailed outline. If you want to take a harder look at those, there is a sign up for my weekly newsletter. Um, My email is also there if you have a direct question for me. And my social media pages are also linked. So be sure to follow along for the latest. And remember that all information contained in this podcast is educational in nature and is not considered financial advice.